Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott and uh, usually I would be joined by the dulcet tones of Cam the Provocateur but I've ejected him out of the DB5 this week and and brought in a, a far more accomplished co-host. Joining me for the second time on the show, one half of the team behind the amazing book Some Kind of Hero, Mr. AJ Chowdhury. Hello sir, how are you? Hi Scott, how are you? And uh, hi Cam in absentia. <laughs> uh, he can hear us in the edit. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. But, you know, we have a very, very exciting episode for everyone to listen to today. Um, we'll talk about it a bit more after the chat, but just to sort of set it up before we hit uh, play, joining AJ and I is Mr. Jamie Anderson. Now, that name may not ring a bell to you, but perhaps his father will, Jerry Anderson, the creator of things like Thunderbirds, Joe 90, Captain Scarlet, Stingray, Space 1999, Many, many, many things. But what you may not know is that back in the late 1960s, he actually wrote a script treatment for a James Bond film titled Moonraker that never got made. Uh, it's been locked away in a vault for, oh, I don't know, about 50 years. But exclusively here on Spy Hearts, we are going to give you all of the juicy details. So I think without further ado, AJ, if you're ready to go, let's hit play on that interview. Here we go. And joining us on the show now, a man who doesn't need a big introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. It is Mr. Jamie Anderson. I, the credits are long as my arm. I've only got one working arm right now, but it's a pretty long arm, as it were. Jamie, <laughs> hello. Welcome to the show, finally. How are you? I'm fine, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. And also, my, my credits are not long, but my dad's credits are long, right? So the reason I'm here really is nepotism, which is great. And I'm happy to help with that. Uh, but yes, yeah, I mean, the people, people don't know who I am, but they might know Dad, I guess. Well, I, I wouldn't quite say that. You've got you've got the pod. I just literally finished watching you know, one of your documentaries earlier, the one you put out last year about your father today mm. on Amazon. I watched that. Wonderful. Um, which I'll get into in a wee bit. But I think let's let's go around introducing you a little bit, though, because, you know, you, you mentioned your father. And before we started this, me and AJ spoke briefly about sort of your father's work. And we'll get into the connective tissue maybe with him and James Bond in a little bit. But let, let's set the stage. Jamie Anderson, do you like spy movies? <laughs> I do quite like spy movies, yes. Okay. Well, that, that gets us in a good stead. This is spy hards, after all. <laughs> um, and taking it sort of back maybe to your childhood a little bit, maybe just talk us through, were you watching spy movies growing up? Was Bond on in the house? Were you a fan of those sorts of films? And what were you watching? So Bond being on in the house, yes. But I would say between the ages of five and eight, those kind of Sunday afternoon slots mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, a child not really paying that much attention, I'm afraid to say. I know this is the wrong place to say all these things, but <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. I'm going I'm going to be honest about my uh, my bond credentials or lack thereof. I think I'm afraid I'm of that generation where my first intro to Bond really was Goldeneye. Um. And, you know, because there are people working on that who'd work with dad, there was a kind of a, an innate connection there. And it's one one of the films that I remember dad taking me to see in the cinema, which was, which was a relative rarity, actually. I you know, probably only remember 10 or 12 of those occasions. There were more, but that's one of the ones that kind of looms large because he talked about, uh, it was Derek Meddings who was the visual effects supervisor on bond was on goldeneye yeah so it was mm -hmm. it was about the the Derek connection um he spoke about that on the way back and then of course mark harris 
um, ended up doing a lot of kind of senior art department production design stuff on the subsequent uh, films. So I've, there were definitely a few trips to Pinewood to do a few behind the scenes bits and pieces, um, walking around the planks on uh, Zukovsky's uh, caviar factory location, for example, um, uh, and seeing BMW Z3 back then that they sliced in half with the choppers with the blades underneath. I think that was the one. Yeah, Mark, Mark so Harris. Oh, it was a Z8. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, no, they, this is be... this is why AJ's here. You see, I don't. Well, have I'm so glad, AJ, because I don't, I don't want somebody okay. at home to be shouting Z8, Z8, not three. It's only a uh, number. You know, that was at the paddock tank, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. And Mark, you know, the, those are the cutting halfers. Yeah. There, Mark was talking us through, and then uh, I guess probably look going on to the bond stage for the world is not enough. Maybe is that the one where they they kind of hang on to the chains and get blasted right. down? Yeah. Yeah, so Mark showing us the kind of foreshortened sets and stuff. So weirdly, getting very, very special insight into some of the behind the scenes thing, which is kind of it's the captivating thing as a as a kid. That's for me, it was not it was not so much the end product, but the process to get there. Um yeah. so yeah, a, a bit of a strange angle on Bond, I guess. Well, it's a certainly unique angle. <laughs> Um, yes. you, you made use of the connections you had. I'm sure any of us at that age would be clamoring to go to those sets. I mean, it's a wonderful we, entry point, isn't it? To yeah, actually go on yes. the sets of Bond. You know, it, it was definitely rather cool. And then, and then later, actually, even more recently, um, Steve Begg took me around uh, when they were rebuilding the Westminster Bridge scene for one of the more recent Daniel Craig's Spectre. Spectre. Thank you. Yeah. That was Spectre, yes. And a few bits and pieces there and showing the kind of helicopter rig across the the ceiling. So yeah, over over the years, some very cool looks behind the curtain, um, which is sort of part of the draw, I guess, for me. And, and sort of aside from from Goldeneye, which is also my entry point as well, that was the perfect age for me getting into the Bonds. Was there any other spy movies in your house or something you reached for? Or even now, spy movies you'd like to go and watch? Uh, Bourne, probably, back yep, in the good. day. Mm-hmm. Bourne was was probably a big thing. And I, I, I get, that might have been another <clears throat> another another cinema trip. Um, and uh, the, the t- first Tom Cruise Mission Impossible, um, yeah. which I remember that was another cinema trip. But... Uh, after the kind of pre-credits thing, the big bass note came in for the for the opening with the kind of um, the burning fuse, mm-hmm. and the big bassy note gave my poor mum a nosebleed. Oh. She had to run out, and she didn't come back in, and then we had to leave. So I only saw the first like fifteen minutes of Mission Impossible before we had to leave as a family to go and look after her. She was fine eventually. Um, so yeah, I, I guess those are the the main three, but I guess they are the main. The main three that people are going to recall from their childhoods, right? Yeah, I wasn't expecting you to come up with a a, a Matt Helm film or something like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely the highlights, of course, <laughs> which is what I was watching at the exact same time as well. It totally yeah. made tracks for me. Yeah, I was. I mean, you know, you get onto telly and stuff, and you're into Man from Uncle, etc. As well, that was all kind of around me. But you know, I was I was busy being a traitor and watching Doctor Who uh, rather than <laughs> Dad shows or or any spy stuff either. So I, you know, I was just getting in trouble. Which, to be fair, you say about your father's long list of credits. You do have credits too. You, you know, big finish, Doctor Who. Yes, plen- plen- plenty of audio dramas and yeah. um, and uh, the prisoner reimagining. I was a script yeah. editor on and uh, various other bits and pieces. So yeah, yeah, we've done 
at the odd bits and pieces here. Yeah, and there. yeah, tipping of hat to you as well. And I, I think, um, I think AJ was going to ask you a quick question as well, so about bond connections. Yeah, um, Jamie, there's of course there's a bond is sort of in the Anson blood. <clears throat> be prior to uh, the Bond films, you know, you your father discovered sort of Derek Meddings, whose Sterling work on those 60s shows shows its influence on um the Bond films later. And of course, the cast, but you had Lois Maxwell, you had Shane Rimmer, you had all these voices. There's a huge cast overlap between this, uh, you know, the, the the work in the 60s and 70s and and the Bond pictures. Uh, Michael Billington as yep. well, the key key person. I wondered whether you could talk about some of your memories of, of what you know of some of these people, if at all, especially Michael. Or So I... I think I may have only been at one event while Michael was around when I was a kid, potentially. So the Michael Billington connection is um, loose at best. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the the closest connection, I guess, is John Glenn. Yes, of course. Um, who, you know, dad knew from w- way back when they when they were doing editing, sound editing jobs at Shepparton, I think, in the kind of uh, late 40s, early 50s. And then John... Uh, as I discovered interviewing him for our podcast, yeah. uh, interviewed with Century 21 to direct on Thunderbirds, but was turned right. down right. and wow. sent packing uh, and went off and did other bits and pieces instead. And then obviously got involved with Bond. And then dad brought him in to direct on Space Precinct in the mm. 1990s, um, which was a real, really strange coming together of all sorts of things because dad had been working on that show since the 80s. And it was filmed in L&M uh, stages where uh, UFO had been shot. A lot of the kind of exterior and um, sort of medical bits and pieces were all done there. And then you add John into the mix and add members of the team who'd worked on Thunderbirds and all sorts of other stuff. It was a, That was a real kind of um, a mishmash. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time with with John as a family friend, John as it, as, and his yeah. wife, Janine. Janine was um, great. So yes, yes, a, a, a force to be reckoned with, Janine, in, yeah, in the best yeah. way possible. Um, uh, and yeah, and then I guess yeah, Shane Shane Rimmer, obviously another another part of life that's kind of loomed large. Um, yeah. And uh, spent lots of time with him at, at conventions, and it's amazing though that not, none of the crowd ever really showed off enormously about their list of credits, including Bond. They are all kind of nice, humble people who just enjoyed meeting fans and if those fans had enjoyed them in you know a couple of shots in a bond movie or as a, a voice of a hero puppet character in thunderbirds they were just you know yeah. not nice and happy to know that their their work had created joy elsewhere there was alan hume as well the director of photography who worked a lot on anson and did the first three john glenn bond films and yeah just, you know. yeah uh, i mean they they just keep going on and even um uh, even Richard Gregory, who did a few bits and pieces, and on I think it might have been on Spectre, uh, did a huge exterior build that was going to be blown up. Uh, it was filmed and then was never used in the in the film eventually. So yeah. um, there's yeah, there, I'm I'm sure there's there's little connections all over the place because so many people yeah. in the effects industry certainly cut their teeth exactly. working for Dad. Steve Begg started on Terrorhawks, I think, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So long, can you tell talk to us a bit about Steve Begg? So uh, Steve is brilliant and um, incredibly creative and dedicated to his art. And he, I'm pretty sure he met Dad at an exhibition in Blackpool. 
uh, and had, you know, a, a, a reel of film that he wanted to show him uh, yeah. and showed him that something there. Uh, and then he ended up getting invited down to work on Terror Hawks. And they then had, you know, pretty, pretty good working relationship for well, the rest of dad's career, really. Um, and I've worked more with Steve recently, but yeah. he's a, you know, a lifetime Scottish BAFTA winner yeah. and uh, has obviously had a, had, a, had a huge impact. And he's, he's one of those great people who knows the practical and the digital so well and just yeah. how to combine them. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that again, getting his chance to kind of school himself on an Anderson production those early days was the catalyst for him then, you know, becoming the fantastic uh, visual effects guy that he is now. I think that's fair to say. And Steve's so enthusiastic still and really loved his time with the Meddings company and things like that. So I think yeah. your father's work inspired lots of this current generation of work people with two ways. That's great. Yeah. Um, I was just, uh, I was listening to you just talk about space precinct, and I think the '90s just hit me with a wave of nostalgia. There, I, uh, I, I was just swept back to, uh, I think ITV or maybe BBC at the time, and just uh, watching BBC. It should be BBC. And wasn't is my memory serving? Wasn't Mariam Darbo on that for an episode or two? You could be uh, right. She I... was on something at France, and I don't know if it was that, but uh, yeah, yeah, mm. I think. I think there's. We'll, it, it's... we'll figure this one out off air. I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm generally curious now because that's a, a very strange John Glenn connection there as well. Obviously, working with him before yeah. in, uh, in the Living Daylights, a former guest on the show. But um, we haven't really spoken about it too much, Jamie. But there is a, a reason that we're here to talk today. Oh, it's there. Were you uh, short of guests? Well, yeah, we were running out of. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're a bit bored. Tapped you up. No, it. it okay, so. There is a script, a screenplay, a treatment out there from your father for a Bond film that was done in the late 60s, from what I can tell from the books and the research I've read. Yep. Um, and, and I think I was tagged in a tweet on Twitter last year, and you lovingly replied with a little picture of a little book that you just showed me, which I, I'll ask you just to yeah, look at that. That's a screen Ooh. grab right there. Look at that, cheeky. There's love. Mm. And... Um, <laughs> I thought, well, let's uh, let's have a chat about it, and uh, we're finally here doing it. So I think what I want to do is somewhat turn the floor over to you, Jamie, in a way, and sort of talk to you about what you know about how this came to be, and then maybe yeah. if we can talk a little bit about its contents of this uh, of this uh, long forgotten treatment. Fine. Okay. Well, I'll I'll piece together what I can. Um... Because until dad died, I only vaguely knew that at some point in the past, he had written a treatment for a Bond film that never made it. Mm. And that then there was a bit of a light falling out, shall we say, when it wasn't used and when the film in question was eventually made and maybe some other bits appeared in other films along the way. Mm -hmm. That was his his view at the time anyway. So... um. After he had, after he died, we were going through kind of filing cabinets and stuff. And there's so much material because he was so prolific. He never stopped working. He was a complete workaholic. Uh, and so there's there's all these things for unfinished projects through from the early 60s until like 2011, really. So mm -hmm. lots and lots of stuff. But in there, yes, was this lovely, um, very 1960s uh, black card bound treatment. Uh, I think it's about 84 pages something like that 83 pages mm -hmm. um for moonraker um and 
Yeah, you're, I think your dating of it is correct because on the front page of the treatment, it's uh, credited to Century 21 Pictures, MGM Studios. So that's before MGM closed down and they moved over to Pinewood when they were shooting UFO. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can say this is probably around 1968. Um, I think that tracks. I think AJ, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That certainly is in line with the timescale we've got. Yeah. So, so something around that. And, you know, again, lots of the information around this is uh, is a little bit hazy, lost yep. time, lost to memory and a kind of eroded and, and changed by by memory. Um, but as far as I know, dad and his one of his key writers, Tony Barwick, who was a longtime friend and collaborator, were approached by. It is Harry Saltzman, isn't it? I think is yeah. that right? That's right. So yeah. Harry Harry approached them and basically said, "Look, we're looking into next Bond films, and you you know you two are clearly prolific and great for adventure and love your work. And would you be interested in doing one?" Um, and so they gave him they gave Dad uh, the book, the, the Fleming version, and said, "Okay." do us a treatment and we'll see what we can make happen. I think the view was that Century 21 could potentially produce or co-produce it. And um, I think dad's aim was that he would produce and or direct it. So that was all very exciting. So they went off and I'm sure I've read it in an interview and maybe even heard it in some archive tapes that dad was not that impressed with the book and felt it was not, you know, it could be a lot more exciting and maybe felt a bit old at the time, even in 1968. And I mean, they, you know, they were in their minds working in 2068 rather than 1968. So I can imagine how that would be. But anyway, to, um, Tony and dad worked on this treatment, presented it back to Harry eventually. Um, and as da- dad told the story again as far as i can remember and i'm very happy to be corrected by any listener who says i've heard otherwise um they gave it to harry at like 6 p.m one evening at the end of a work day uh, and thought well that's it and then at like half 10 11 at night dad had an urgent call from harry who's who wanted to speak to him he said i've read it and it's fantastic this is absolutely the best the best thing it's just wonderful um i'm gonna i'm gonna give it to cubby and we're gonna see if we can you know get this moving uh and dad was so enthused by this he really thought you know i've made it we've cracked it we're gonna do this and then nothing Mm. complete silence um and he chased up didn't really hear anything and then I I don't know what the timeline is, and you can help me out here between that point and the dissolution of the the working relationship between Harry and Cubby. But I, either that was coming down the tracks or was happening there and then at the time this was being looked at, and at that point the whole thing fell to bits. So what's the what's the timeline for that? Well, it sort of tracks, but so Cubby and Harry sort of began their professional divorce in about 66, 67, and mm. they informally alternated producing films. So your timeline, so Harry Saltzman is very much the main producer of Majesty's Secret Service, which is 68 to 69. Yep. Thereafter, Cubby Broccoli takes over for Diamonds Are Forever. But we'll go on to the details of the treatment later, but it tracks that some of those elements may have been considered for what was then the draft for Diamonds Are Forever. 
Yeah. So even though their eventual split came in 1975, the dissolution of Dan Jack, between Harry, Harry Saltzman, Cubby Buckley, Dan Jack being their, their Swiss company that holds the copyright, not Eon Productions that makes the films in England. Yeah. Um, so this tracks back. The, the, the dissolution had happened over a period of time. And it seems that Harry Saltzman sometimes made mercurial decisions and suggested things and got people involved that weren't supposed to be involved and and sort of vice versa. So this very much tracks into the the mythology that we know of. Okay, right. Well, I'm glad that makes sense. And I haven't yeah, said something that's completely uh, nonsensical to you. No. Um, so th- as far as I know, at that point, then, say around 1969, 70, Dad and Tony were busy working on UFO um mm. then dad went off to produce the protect protectors for lou grade and they were doing other bits and pieces and then working up to space 1999 so it was all it was a kind of busy period and there were periods of downtime but i think they just wrote it off then around the mid late 1970s something became contentious um uh, and that is either that there are elements from dad and tony's moonraker treatment that appeared in Diamonds Are Forever, you say? Was that? Well, um, I think I think well, it's The Spy Who Loved Me is the big in What became The Spy Who Loved Me. Spy yeah. Who Loved Me, thank you, fine. Or, uh, it, this is later when Moonraker was was announced more formally. Was, maybe the tensions were building across that point. But somewhere around there, Dad got pretty peeved mm. and thought, well, you know, Tony and I went off and did all this lovely work, and it's not my fault you were having some professional hoo-ha and eventually a professional divorce, I did the work, and now either we're not being given the opportunity to make the film we wanted to make, or you've nicked bits. That was the kind of the view potentially. So there was a, a bit of a bust up with with Cubby, um, and as far as I know, they came to a, an agreement. Um, let's not have a big punch up over this. It's going to cost us all lots of money. Uh, Jerry, we appreciate the work you did. Here's a little bit of cash, to, you know, for your trouble. Uh, and in return for that, you must um, forget this, walk away, and destroy all copies of your treatment. Uh, so money money changed hands, but apparently he didn't destroy all copies of the treatment. Now, whether that was on purpose or not, I couldn't possibly say, and he's not here to answer. Um, and so that is how I, I we still had it, because it was in the back of a filing cabinet for all those years. Um, but obviously, in his mind, well, that's done. But they, I think he must have been proud to some degree of having produced this document otherwise he wouldn't have kept hold of it because he wasn't a nostalgic man he kept virtually nothing over the years that he didn't think that would might be might be useful later on or really 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 meant to something to him i mean he chucked out family albums of photographs of me as a kid happily and yet he kept his moonraker treatment so what does that tell you uh it, it, it says a few things um for sure but um well, it, it's fascinating that he did keep it. And I, I think if I was in his shoes, I probably would have kept a copy as well, because it, it, mm. even if it didn't happen and the film wasn't made, there was a point in time where he was part of that Bond family. And I think anyone who's making film or TV around that point in time would want to be part of that family, because especially late 60s, early 70s, that's Bond Bond at the height of its Bondness almost. Yeah. You know, Connery becoming Lazenby, becoming Connery again, becoming Roger Moore. It's the height of it almost until maybe when Pierce Brosnan steps into the role in 95, which we talked about Goldeneye before. Yeah. And so you found it. I found it. And then I'd set, I, because of the the history and, you know, the 
you know, you're supposed to destroy all these things. I thought, well, I can't really do anything with it. Um, and I didn't do anything with it until during lockdown uh, when I can't remember what sparked the idea. Um, actually, I think it may have been, I was chatting to an author friend, Andy Lane, um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, who's done, who's done, you know, very good and there you go. Some good books on Bob. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. And he had been doing some work um, with uh, the Fleming estate uh, yeah. and said to Corinne there, you know, do you want to talk to them about it? So I had a quick chat with her and she said, okay, but this is, this is really outside of my area because it's not one of Ian's books. That's right. It's very much something that would be in Eon's area. So go and talk to them. So I had a, a very nice chat. Um, they were really unaware of it uh, because I guess, you know, in the, in the scheme of things in the grand scheme for Covey, certainly this was a kind of, you know, a minor irritation, please go away, have some money, forget it. And, and he was very much moving on. Um, so they've had sight of it. They, I don't think they were terribly impressed by it, but it, I mean, it is a treatment from 1968. It's not going to compare to stuff now. Um, and uh, Barbara and David there just, you know, said, you know, fine that it exists. Um, we don't really want to do anything with it. Yeah, if you want to talk to the Fleming Estate, then fine. And that's kind of where it's where it's ended. Um, there's definitely potential that someday it could get out there in some form, but that would be in partnership with the Fleming Estate, and that's not currently on the cards. But who knows? Um, it's it's a nice bit of strange parallel universe film history, isn't it? Jamie, Wait. have you read it? <laughs> I haven't. I hadn't read it since 2014. Right. Until today. Okay, wow. Mm. Because I thought, I really want to refresh my memory of this, because I had very, very small memories of, uh, you know, elements of it. Um, mm. but I thought I, you know, I, I really should refresh my memory. And there, there were some really lovely, very Anderson bits and pieces in there, I think. Um, and I don't know how many of those bits and pieces were from, from the book or from the film. I've done a bit of a check and I think a lot of them are completely new inventions. Yeah. Um, and it, and I it is significantly it might, different. Can I, can, my, it might be suggested to push the needle forward. If I read what we know about it, what's been published in the state mm. of the art. Uh, so, so we all, this is out there and then we'll take it on. Maybe you could add some details for it. So I'll sort of set it up in 1968 or late 60s when this was done. It was a Harry Saltzman sort of in thing. One of the key things about this screenplay, we think it, it developed the idea of a super tanker as being a villain's base. And the idea for the then next Bond film was going to be Diamonds Are Forever. After Lazenby didn't quite cut it, they were going to go back to Goldfinger as the prime of the fleet. And the plot of Diamonds Are Forever was going to involve Goldfinger's twin brother. And it involved a laser weapon being launched on the hull of a super tanker. And we think these ideas maybe emanated at some point from this draft. The the adaptation was from the Ian Fleming novel Moonraker, which was a plot that has never really been filmed that involved Sir Hugo Drax being a Nazi uh, interloper in British society who cheats at bridge and is going to self-fund an independent nuclear deterrent called the Moonraker. And he's going to test fire it off the coast of Dover. And actually the weapon has a real nuclear warhead installed and is going to fire on London, therefore obliterating London, striking a blow for the Nazis and 
tract is actually funded by the Soviet Union. And it's that book is very parochial, set on the White Cliffs of Dover. Bond doesn't go anywhere else but England. And it's anomaly. It's a hugely favourite book amongst Fleming fans. But as a film adaptation compared to what the films were becoming by that stage, as Cubby Broccoli dismissed it, it's only about a piddling little rocket when he adapted Moonraker in 678. So the, the story is, is that Jerry Anson developed with Anthony Barwick a story that involved nuclear weapons, um, a, a, a Nordic fjord and um, this, this super tanker which um, would fire nuclear missiles at the um, superpowers, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Harry Saltzman bought it and didn't use it. Um, and then later on, when The Spy Who Loved Me was developed as a film in 75, 76, elements of this may have found themselves in the in Spy Who Loved Me. Um, the Spy Who Loved Me novel was adapted, but with a clause from the Ian Fleming estate that they could only use the title. For those who are unfamiliar with the novel, 1962's The Spy Love Me is written from a female perspective. And James Bond only appears two thirds of the way into it and involves himself two, two, two gangsters who are basically brutalising a, a woman left in a motel and it's an insurance fraud job and Bond appears by chance at the end and overcomes these villains and he is the spy of me in the story written from the perspective of Vivian Michelle in the original novel Fleming actually gives her a co-author credit so that will explain why the spy of me novel was never to be adapted and therefore Cubby Broccoli uh, hired a multitude of screenwriters including John Landis, Sterling Syphilant Anthony Barwick, and it would seem that elements of this pre-existing treatment could have migrated their way into what became The Spiral of Me, which is the film that features the super tanker as the villain's base, etc., etc. So that's speculation we have of the state of the art. But none of us, Jamie, none of us have read what you've read or know about it. So <laughs> anything further than that, a villain's name, a location, the Bond girl, anything further than that, We'll push this story forward. <laughs> Did he reveal anything or not? Okay, yeah, um, yeah. So there, there are definitely some elements there that do appear. Um, the super tanker is certainly part of it. So in, in this version, um, Drax is a, um, a wheelchair-bound villain with long red hair, enormous mutton chops, and a big moustache. <laughs> and yes, had that history of... Um, being involved with the V2 rocket yeah, but yeah. is also developing Moonraker for uh for the UK government. Um the the base is uh accessed via an incomplete channel tunnel um okay. and is is 300 feet beneath the channel. Um in this case the nuclear um warhead which is attached to uh, Moonraker it's a, it's a bit of a weird one this it's it's a kind of forcing global nuclear disarmament option so it's not to be used against any particular nation um the idea here is that the moonraker device is put into orbit around the moon mm -hmm. and should any nation ever use nuclear deployment this thing will redeploy itself back on, against the earth uh and destroy mm -hmm. the entire planet so the whole idea is, you know, it's mutually assured destruction 
for real, but independently uh, controlled. So it's it's got its it's once it's launched, it's it's got its own detection systems. Nobody can influence it, and that's the plan. Um, so Drax is involved in that bit, but also has his big villainous super tanker, which has got it's a great description. It's sort of like a an unimaginable scale. A quarter of a mile long and 600 feet wide or something like that. Um, So when I'm giving away quite a lot of the treatment here, but why not? I mean, you know, this is all completely exclusive. Nobody else has heard this. I don't think probably nobody's read it since since the early 70s. Um, So when Bond is is investigating Drax and Bond meets Drax in all sorts of locations and they, they go gambling on his plane, on his private plane to see why is cheating which is a sort of off, yes. the, off the books meeting with M. Yeah. um he then he then meets him in the underground or the under channel base for the moonraker launch and starts fiddling around in his office and discovers that there's um a, a radiation exposure system inside uh, drax's office which you know is all kind of throwaway oh well that's a bit weird i wonder why he's got that um we then later end up at this vast super tanker, uh, and inside it is a huge rocket laying on its side along the length of the tanker. So, you know, familiar elements here. Mm. Nobody can work out what it is. There's a bit of to and fro with Bond and some dolphins with uh, landmines or uh, undersea mines strapped to their backs that give chase to Bond in a one-man sub. Um, and it, eventually the, the plan is revealed that and I think this kind of harks back to some of Drax's plan in the, the eventual film that he was kind of trying to select a super race, you know, select a group who would survive some kind of an ap- apocalypse um, on Earth. But his plan was to use this tanker to tip it 90 degrees in the water and launch his counter rocket directly from the tanker to explode the Moonraker device 50 miles above the Earth, irradiate the planet, but all of his pre-selected people and he had been exposed for a long time to low-dose low, low dose radiation that would allow them to survive and everybody else would um, would die. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 quite, it's quite a creative setup. There's a lot of kind of very plot-heavy bits and pieces um jamie that's brilliant that's really pushed the needle forward <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of that was not in the public domain no um, none of it is i mean uh, people jamie, are on a, hang on one second AJ. i mean people are yeah. on uh, on sort of tenterhooks listening to this getting a plot of a film that never happened I, i'd be remiss if i interrupt you jamie i want to let you keep spilling the beans as much as you can i want to hear about <laughs> bond i want to hear about the bond girl i want to hear about wow. everything you know what, what have we got yeah so i'm just i'm i'm just looking up i was going to give you um the uh the, the 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 gadgets that Q gives Bond. Oh, lovely! So we yeah we've got the torpedo shaped one man submarine capable of thirty knots and a range of two hundred miles, fitted with remote controlled guidance systems and autopilot. Obviously, of course. What else? Um, uh, a watch on one side, a skin diver's depth meter. Q turns it over and we see a normal watch with with one refinement. Press a small button and the glass flips open. Aim and count to three. The minute hand is a dart impregnated with a drug capable of stunning a man in 10 seconds. Accurate up to five yards. <laughs> it's right. the details. It's the details. <laughs> it is. And an exploding uh, lighter, which is is used later on. Um, 
Now, the the Bond girl in this, he, I mean, there are several, uh, which don't, uh, there's no, there's not, I don't think there is actually one standout one unless you go to the end. Um, uh, Gala Brand, I think yeah. is the name, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, Moonraker, the novel. Okay, there you go. So that's that's consistent. Um, I mean, there are very other various other attempts. And in fact, the first girl who tries to, um, you know, make an approach to Mr. Bond gets ejected out of uh, Drax's aircraft um, for for threatening to write a note to him or something like that. Um, there's a great. Do you have a name? Do you have any of the other Bond girl names? Oh, they're mostly referred to as you know, girl or guard. I think. Oh, okay. Um, I hope it's a classic pornographic bomb names <laughs> no no I, d- I don't think there's anything um anything pornographic in the names here honestly uh no they're both they're generally referred to as as i mean there's a whole scene of uh some of the girls on the ship going for a swim and then coming up to see him uh which is, is definitely interesting. the late 60s here folks yeah, yeah. absolutely and there's a, there's a there's a great moment as well with uh um drax's kind of number two who fails to capture bond uh and then is is killed by is they're sitting in inflatable chairs uh and drax presses a a feature on his desk a little cupid statue and it fires an arrow at the inflatable chair which bursts and is full of a lethal gas and this guy's is done that way (laughs) i mean there are definitely easier ways to to polish off your failing employee um (laughs) And and Drax also at the start of this story, um, he's running a kind of um an interview process, shall we say, for a bodyguard. Um, and he has five guys all fight against one another. Uh, and he ends up selecting Gromo. Um Gromo. Gromo. Is that is that a, a, does that mean anything? I, that's new to me. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Gromo. Okay, so Gromo's um thing is he's tiny. Uh, but he has a, he basically catapults ball bearings at people to do them in. Okay, brilliant, that's wonderful. Yeah. So that's... Gromo, the ball bearing assassin. That's <laughs> that's new. Okay. okay, well that's that's good. I wasn't sure if that appeared somewhere else. No. Um, there's a very dark pre-titles um, assassination of uh, a guy called Marchetti. Right. Um, which is using a very dark. Uh, um tool attached to Marchetti's phone handset, which basically punctures his temple. Um okay. so that's pretty dark. And then there's this, I mean, I don't know if you'd like this, but um Dad and Tony's vision for the main titles, okay. which are uh quite um yes, quite quite forthright in their sexual connotations, shall we say. Um the huge bulk of the Moonraker rocket superimposes uh, superimposed uh, on it the silhouettes of beautiful girls moving seductively to the slow beat of the theme music. The towering, perpendicular, somehow masculine rocket. <laughs> the pulse of the music <laughs> gradually increases. I mean, this is pretty raunchy stuff. Wow. The girls weave and gyrate against the background of the rocket, erect and still. Then it ignites with a burst of flame and spoke, the pace of the dance builds up. The pounding rhythm generates a psychedelic abandonment in the flailing bodies. The rocket slowly lifts off. The awesome feeling of its tremendous thrusting power. The dance becomes a frenzy. The music reaches its climax as the rocket surges up. 
the girls fall away exhausted wow i mean nothing if if restrained I'd round say. of applause jamie uh, i quite a retelling john there. barry and don black let's set yeah, it to me let's go let's get I it mean, done that would would be quite interesting wouldn't it but i mean you know that it, this is it's not a it's not a kind of throwaway treatment oh well you know we'll just no. do a two-pager there's a, a huge amount that has gone into it um i i think there's a after after it feels like everything has been solved there's a second drax threat after all of this as well excuse my dogs if you can hear them barking in the background they just want to be involved with everything they really um, like the, the treatment too to be fair yeah, they, yeah they're massive bond fans um yeah. so yeah so so they think that drax has been killed or done away with uh and he reappears um at moonraker hq uh and essentially says well i thought this might happen and this is the link to a future anderson production so i always installed this failsafe device um and uh, now unless the world's governments give in to my demands whatever they were i'm going to detonate it where it is around the moon and blow the moon out of earth's orbit oh wow which hmm. you know must have been on their minds, and I guess later became Space 1999's conceit, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, they defeat Drax and flood the uh, the Moonraker yeah. um, base uh, by the Channel Tunnel, and uh, all is well, and everything's fine. How yeah. interesting! Sorry, what locations are there in the movie? Is it mainly around the UK, or is it? Do we go? No, the, got it. No, the vast. So it's we start off in Brazil, which is where this initial. Um, assassination occurs yeah and then we leave brazil and we don't really go back there um lots of uk locations um nothing well it's all earthbound um drax is has made his money through oil he's an oil kind of industrialist and so some of his work happens at this uh, an oil refinery in the caribbean okay um but for the most part, then it's, you know, they M and Bond go to London International Airport, which is a very Anderson vision of the future. Yeah. You know, there's one international airport to get on Drax's um, uh, jet to, to to go off and yeah. play whatever they're playing. Uh, uh, and they, in fact, it's, it says very specifically that um, M and Bond return from their off the books mission seven and a half thousand pounds poorer which M is right. going to have to cover up because this is not an official mission. Okay. Uh, so I thought that was uh, that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, it's uh, and then it's uh, then you know I mean the Dover money, Road. Money. I mean they're very um, you know parochial locations, many of them. Yeah. Which uh, was that road? The Dover Road. Okay. Well, all these are locations from the book. Yeah. And there's a car chase on the Dover Road. A lot of this is. The book is sent, so a lot of it emanates directly from the Ian Fleming book. Is yeah. Money Penny in the story, Jamie? No you? mention of Money Penny that I spotted on my reread. Okay. Anyway, no. Fantastic. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents! Independent podcasting, much like the Spy Game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top-secret volcano lair. We're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. 
Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Call me Pliskin. This week, Scott, we are going to look at the 1981 John Carpenter classic, Escape from New York. It's going to be A number one. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. I'm, I'm quite curious from a sort of creative standpoint yourself, Jamie, what do you think of the treatment and would it make a good film? I think there's a lot of really fun stuff in that. I think there's a lot of stuff that looking through a, a contemporary lens, you know, you'd look at something like Austin Powers and go, okay, well, we can't have these like, you know, laser guided dolphin things that are going to blow up bombs. Dragging mines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which they call the sea dogs, I think in this. Um, so there, there are some bits which are a bit too naff. Um, there's a very throwaway uh, hovercraft chase on an island after Bond does escape the ship, um, which I thought was going somewhere. And actually, Bond just you know runs away. They all crash, and he's fine. Uh, so there are some kind of that feels like maybe Dad and Tony that you needed to increase your page count or something there. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of really amazing visuals and descriptions um you know there's stuff like when bond escapes initially from this huge super tanker he gets up onto the main deck and because it's so big to get around the guards use motorbikes and so there's a great motorbike chase around the deck of this super tanker um which is really fun so there's some great action pieces some great bits of tech um there is an all there's also a fantastic scene that great he can't possibly get out of this one moment yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um which is so, sort of reminiscent of titanic uh as as the the super tanker is inverting so yeah there's there's a lot of really good stuff you'd have to modernize it for sure um mm. and i mean the closing lines of the uh of the story oh, they're they're definitely a bit um 1960s uh awkward bond girl moment but you know it, it is what it is it's a it's of the time 1960s treatment can you what, share what you... that with us is and this is gala brand he ends up with uh yes who i don't know if this means anything but in this particular bit she's been renamed uh so bond sips the cool bubbling liquid and smiles into the dark blue eyes of gala bond it says here I don't know if that's suggesting where they got married or there is a typo. I don't know. Uh, He puts down his glass by the bed and kisses her. Gala smiles and asks, have you got a license for this? Yes. And for this too, replies Bond. They clinch, which is a very old fashioned term, isn't it? Uh, The gleaming white ship speeds towards the sun. End titles. Wonderful. There you go. So... In the original yes. book, Moonraker, Gala Brand was the first Bond girl who Bond doesn't go off with. In fact, she leaves him. She's engaged ah. and left melancholic. Bond is the man who's only a silhouette. And that that's sort of the bittersweet ending of the novel Moonraker. OK, so what a happier you, ending you, for Mr Bond. Yeah, exactly. Here they've sort of what you and Gala Brand is a name that has cropped up in many other Bond film drafts. She's in Quantum Solace. She's in Die Another Day. And it never quite works out. She still remains the only name of Bond girl that hasn't been used yet. One of the few. Ah. 
Jamie, what you say is fascinating about the, the nuclear disarmament idea. That was actually then used in Diamonds Are Forever, this space laser battle. Blofeld's mm-hmm. thing is actually to fool a peacenik into sort of doing away with nuclear weapons, but Blofeld sort of subverts that sort of hippie idea mm. in that film. So the elements of that do exist in the, the final film. So, yeah, it's very, very, very interesting. You've really, really pushed the needle forward here. I uh, I have to ask, you know, I imagine this was written with perhaps Sean Connery or George Lazenby in mind, given the time period it was all being mm. made in. For you, Jamie, as being the only person in the room who's actually read the treatment all the way through, <laughs> who do you see as Bond when you're reading it? Uh, do you know what? That's so bizarre because I didn't actually make that conscious decision at any point before or during reading it, but it was Sean Connery throughout, uh, uh, now reflecting on it. Even, even when I was reading that, those last few words to you then, it's completely, completely Connery. When well, it would have been, because I think for dad and for dad and Tony, he was the, you know, the man of the moment so much so that he was given as the, the inspiration for the sculpt of Scott Tracy and Thunderbirds, you know, so he, he must've been in their minds and although there's very little in terms of dialogue through this i suppose it doesn't really matter to that to, to much of an extent but it just yeah it naturally i naturally assumed it would be connery well you see there's an interesting connection with your father and who it could have been so by the time this was written connery was no longer james bond mm. lazenby had done his magic secret service and it wasn't till late in the day when they were going to get Connery back. In fact, they tested a number of people. And one of the key names that was up for Bond was Michael Billington, Mm. who around about this time, who probably had some sort of connection with your father. And there were lots of other names in there. But Michael Billington goes on to play Sergei in The Spy Love Me, (coughs) Anya Amasova's partner as a stalwart of lot of your father's productions and was close to members of the the Broccoli family, as we know. So, um, you know, just having done it, you know, our 800 page book on this subject, Some Kind of Hero, the remarkable story of the James Bond films, which I wrote with Matthew Field. We've covered a lot of this ground, but this area here remains opaque as to how this fits in. So I strongly said this was probably written for a new Bond. Mm. That could well have been somebody like, especially your father was aiming to direct it, some new fresh face, late 60s face, like Michael Billington, who came close, he says in interviews, to being James Bond a number of times, um, um, especially when Roger Moore gave up in 1980. Michael yeah. Billington claims to have been had a full costume test and flown out to a call few ready to assume the role. So it could well be that your father's involvement could have coincided with a new updated casting of it uh, but yeah it could it could have been written with connery in mind but by that stage no one could have foreseen connery would come back and then only for one picture mm. yeah i mean the, the michael billington connection clearly you know when he when he got then is in ufo i know around the time again they were writing this and they were planning ufo that they were doing screen tests um for various ufo girls and i think michael billington at that stage so whether he he was in the mix according to harry maybe already maybe there was a you know there were a few they were listing or maybe the other way around they'd been screen testing with michael billington and he was suggested in conversation i guess we won't know but it certainly fits timeline wise um that that he could have been uh, at least vaguely in mind or brought into mind by the whole the whole process and working together 
it, just at the time, it seems Connery would be less likely to have been the new Bond. Mm -hmm. And this screenplay fits into the sort of ethos that whenever they're writing a new film for potential new Bond, they had to have it very exciting and entertaining, whoever was going to play James Bond. And this certainly certainly fits into that. Mm. And yeah. you had me at Dolphins Dragging Mines. That's, yeah. all, I, that's all I need. Um, well, I, Dolphins Dragging Mines, but I just want to make a point. That's not as silly as it seems, because there was real-life CIA testing. There was on that at the mm -hmm. time there was that film the George C. scott picture the day of the dolphin so that while and i believe that dolphins were involved in some sort of then the aquatic domain of stromberg in the spy love me sort of mm -hmm. seems to coincide with this story idea as well again these coincidental things Be being a media lawyer showbiz lawyer myself it would sit i could understand totally what firstly it's perfectly fine for your dad to retain one copy for himself that's that, that's perfectly legal. And secondly, you can see why when the Spy Love Me came about, there was a mishmash of ideas from multiple writers, and probably mm. your father was probably justifiably saying, "Well, wait a second, mm. he paid me off," and you know, and it, there's no there's a reason why Dan Jack would have sort of settled him and all, all shook hands and it was all fine. So I don't think it was like something nefarious or villainous. It's just what happens. All the time, people absolutely, yeah. You know, do that. You you know that, Jamie. You know it's got in the oh, industry. Yeah. And, and also, you wait long enough, somebody's going to come up with exactly the same idea as you. You know, it's, absolutely, uh, ideas aren't actually that valuable until they are yeah. are realised, are yeah. crystallised. So, um, well, I I suppose if this is perhaps the first time, and perhaps the only time this has ever really spoken about this script, I want to give Jamie another chance. To, is there anything else that jumps out to you in there that you wanted to get out and talk about? Any scenes that jump out to you in particular moments, lines that you uh, still chuckle about when you think about anything like that? Well, I'm, I'm still chuckling about the um, stirred, not shaken, rather than shaken, not stirred. So what was uh, the context of that I mean. one? Uh, so this is in the pre, pre the opening, uh, those lovely um, phallic opening titles. <laughs> Evocative. Uh, yes. When he's doing his uh, his his lovely murder of Marchetti, um, I think this is just when he arrives at this fancy bar. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll I'll give you this entire bit if you would like. Uh, the car pulls up outside an exclusive nightclub. Bond gets out. He flips the keys to the boy to park it. As he walks, he takes off his jacket, reverses it, turns down the collar and moves casually through the doorway, now immaculately dressed in a white tuxedo. Mm -hmm. Smooth. Uh, a girl waits for Bond at the bar. He meets her, orders a vodka martini, stirred, not shaken, and glances around. Uh, it's a Bond kind of scene. A Latin American group play a cha-cha. Brazilian coffee tycoons mingle with Bolivian tin millionaires. Beautiful women sip French champagne from Waterford crystal glasses. Bond eyes his date and tries to relax. It's a nice little evocative 60s Bond scene, isn't it? I, I can picture it in my head, and I do picture Sean. Weirdly yeah, enough. Yes, yeah, especially that uh, that jacket reverse. The jacket, exactly, the jacket, yeah. 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 That's yeah. very, very cool. Um, so, yeah, and then he basically gets, gets a bit jolly and sloshed until 3 a.m., calls the guy and... Uh, murders him over the phone which is quite a fun maneuver as you do okay. yeah <laughs> pretty standard and i suppose then what's your favorite moment from going through it a couple of times what's like your favorite moment from the treatment that uh that you would maybe maybe one maybe your favorite moment and this moment you would most like to see in in a real film 
I mean, the the kind of vast visual of this um, this super tanker doing mm. its kind of Titanic esque yeah. move, and again, you know, that's something which kind of made it into UFO with Skydiver. This you know this sub where it would tip at forty five degrees, and then the front part Sky One would launch off from underwater. Um, it, it you know that made it into UFO. It's, it's not the same but it's similar but in this in the scene where the launch is happening uh bond and and gala brand are trapped in a watertight cell uh, uh and bond has decided to use his shoe to smash a porthole to get out but then realizes actually it's too small and he's feel, sealed their fates um and so that that moment of this kind of vast machinery lifting out the water and at the same time in this tiny confined space uh it looks like it's all over for bond that's a great a great bit and i really like the contrast of the you know the vast open space and this enormous uh vehicle and then this very claustrophobic thing happening at the same time it's really nice how does he get out in the end that, that well, that's a classic snake pit situation they call it don't they yes uh I'm afraid um, that it's not actually a very exciting resolution. <laughs> it's essentially um, the, the 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 door is watertight in case of this very thing happening, and eventually the pressure becomes so great that the door bursts open. Oh, so okay. he, so Bond he does get them out, but not yeah, in the yeah. way he intended. And it's a little bit unsatisfying in that way. But they still get out, and you know, then it's into throwing fire extinguishers at guards, and you know, doing all sorts of stuff to escape, and uh, and a real kind of a lovely race against time you know everybody looking at their watches 38 seconds to go all that kind of um yeah, yeah very adrenaline filled stuff jamie the description of drax as this big red-headed chap with moss chops in a wheelchair comes of course from the novel which is mm. exactly how drax is destroyed he's been blown up in a in a bomb um are there any cars or special vehicles bond drives does he have any sort of aston martin he drives he drives the aston on this race along the Dover Road. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Early morning, Bond's Aston Martin snarls its way through the light traffic out of the clear way of the, the main Dover Road. Um, and then it, it, uh, a black Mercedes gives chase and he does some very Bond stuff to ditch it. Is is there a sequence, because this again from the book, is there a sequence where there's some newsprint rolls on a truck in front and he loses yes. them off? Okay, that's straight from the novel. Yeah, so he 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 fires to to you know to fray the tethers that are on the the newspaper. Okay, that's brilliant. That is absolutely so, brilliant, Jamie. Uh, yeah, so the the driver. This is after the, these have been set loose. The driver, seeing the danger, swerves, loses control, and slews across the road. The newsprint smashes headlong into the car with the sound of smashing glass and searing metal. Then it explodes as the gas tank goes up. Obviously, every every crash thing in an Anderson show has to yeah. go up like it's loaded with twenty thousand tons of TNT. Long time. Is the henchman called Krebs at all? Do yes. So the 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 guy who ends up being gassed by the deflating inflatable yeah. chair is is Kreb. Yeah. Okay. Right. Terrific. That's all again from the Fleming novel. Yeah. I can hear um, thousands of people listening to this going. I want the whole thing. Just get Jamie to narrate it. Uh, I, I don't. I, I'm not going <laughs> to ask Jamie. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to ask Jamie to do that, folks. But. Um, I, I and I, I want to keep some bits a secret. I think you it, it, there's a lot in there, and I think maybe one day this should be find its way well, out somehow. I agree. I agree. I'm you know I'm not saying it's the, the best 
iteration of a Bond story ever. You know, there are definitely some very naff bits. There are some great bits. There are some quite unbondy bits, I think. But, mm. you know, like I said before, from a film history point of view and from a fascination point of view for fans, especially on that Venn diagram where you've got cross crossover between Bond fans and Anderson fans, I hope there's a little bit yeah. of crossover in the middle there. Huge, yeah. For those people, I mean, this is this is really, really fascinating reading, and I would love to do something with it. But at the moment, um, you know, that that yeah. would require, I think, uh, the Fleming estate um, yeah. to, to say, let's do something. And, they, you know, I think they would like to do something. But for whatever reason, the time wasn't right last year mm. or the year before. You say that your father threw everything away. So is there any correspondence surrounding this, like letters or anything like that from lawyers or saltsmen or nothing at all? Um, the the only place it might be is is Tony Barwick's estate, mm. um, yeah. but I don't I don't believe they've got anything. Um, yeah. And I I suspect. Well, I don't know, but I I'm, I've got a vague memory that Dad said he did have to sign something to say that he wouldn't you know put lay further claim over any future yeah. elements that might appear or he might deem to be similar um but where where that agreement is now i don't know eon didn't seem to have it um so, so yeah lost the mist of time tony barwick and kerry bates who wrote a lot with your dad they then wrote separate treatments for what became this by love me including triplet villains albinos called tic-tac-toe none of these elements appear in this treatment so this has solved another mystery because Lots of people were conflating both the stories, but this seems to be a completely separate individual treatment. At 84 pages long, it's a significant treatment. And mm. you say, is it, is it actually dated? It's not dated. That's the one the one frustration. But as I'm I'm going to flash up to you now, you can yeah. see mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's noted as being MGM, Boreham Wood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now that, that must be before 1970. Um, yeah. They they yeah. wouldn't have put that on unless they were still yeah. housed at MGM yeah. um, before the move to Pinewood, I think. And unless they did keep an office there, and I'm yeah. and I'm incorrect, which is always possible. It sort of fits in the timeline roughly as we discussed before. Yeah, yeah. It could, I mean, it could go into early seventies, and maybe they did maintain an office at MGM and wrote there. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I think you can probably pinpoint it to sixty-eight to seventy-one latest, if yeah. that if that yeah. still fits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it definitely fits. Now, I, as I say, I, I kind of want to leave people wanting a little bit. I want to leave some mystery. Yeah. To oh, the there's story. lots more. There's, there's, there's loads more. There's good. a lot that happens. Can you give this. us as much as you can, Jamie? Basically, <laughs> yeah, AJ, 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 my co-host is fighting me here. Okay, right. Can you just it. read it? <laughs> <laughs> Narrated by Jamie Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're absolutely not doing that. Well, though. if you if you ever uh, uh, do a, a reading of it and need a nasally British man to uh, do, give me a call. <laughs> But I, I kind of want to spin us off a little bit uh, as I sort of wrap us up, Jamie. Now, sure. going through your father's work and, and and sort of what we look at here on the show, espionage is actually quite an important thing. You go from sort of mm. Joe 90, Lady Penelope, there's spies all over the place. Yep. And we're looking at doing the Thunderbirds movies at some point on the show and taking a look at them because Lady Penelope is quite involved in those. But I suppose the question going to you is what is it about spies, spy movies, James Bond that interests you and has kept your interest over the years i i it's going to sound a bit ridiculous but um e even as a kid something like hide and seek was almost overwhelmingly 
adrenaline pumpingly exciting that sounds so so weird now in the context of what kind of modern entertainment that kind of thing but i i think there's an element of of that that bleeds into it when you see entertainment uh that's related to the kind of espionage or spy genre that that the thrill of going undetected from the powers that be Hmm. you know and and winning out in that way i think is really really great it then feeds into the kind of childhood pretending creativity you know, uh, maintaining a, a cover or whatever, pretending to be a character. Um, and then you layer in the kind of the the gadgets and then the life and death and the license to kill. Um, for, for a kid, I think that's kind of bizarrely aspirational and in, uh, inspirational, but also strangely accessible because you grow up in a world where you play games which naturally fit into this and uh, kind of access the world that way do you know what i mean so there's something even though it's very grown up and very serious Mm -hmm. it's kind of accessible to the to the the inner child which never really disappears so i think that's the that's the appeal for me for this uh oversized child anyway well conversely it works both ways because i think the uh the the pre-title sequence and the 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 credits in that film were very adult so uh (laughs) i i guess it appeals to all ages but i can i can you know for me it's like it's like knowing what other people don't know Mm. i I have something you don't know no 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 no. it's all very playground in that sense and absolutely um i have a final question that i ask everyone that's been on the show and i'm saving that for just a minute but i want to say a couple of things first firstly congratulations your show, the Jerry Anderson Podcast, recently hit 250 episodes. Mm. We're, we're tailing you by quite a margin, but um, it's quite the achievement. And uh, I've listened to quite a few episodes in the past, and I've heard you on some of our friends' shows like Inglorious Trexperts. You've been on there, um, good friends of ours. And I just want to say thank, uh, thank you and well done for such well, an achievement. You. It is quite the achievement running a podcast weekly. So well done. It is. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Well, it's been fun, and uh, obviously, without Richard and Chris, my co-hosts, and the you know Laura and Ben doing the editing and producing, then um, they wouldn't be a podcast. Because I remember the days when I used to edit it every Saturday morning, and I used to absolutely dread it. So I'm very grateful that everybody else chucks in as well for that. What's that like having editors? I, I've not quite managed that yet. <laughs> oh, I, I, it's honestly like life changing, Scott. I, can, <laughs> I highly recommend it. I mean, it gave me my Saturday mornings back to do other work. Mm. and um i I actually watched uh in preparation a a documentary you put out you produced uh it came out last year jerry anson a life uncharted Mm. and that's over on amazon prime i think you can get in other places at the world at the moment you have to pay for it on there but um i just think a a really wonderful documentary i think well done and helping put that together is very well made thank you very much it was a very emotional warts and all story uh so you know it's appreciated to hear because you tend to hear sort of these glossier versions of events and i think you do warts Mm. and all absolutely yeah, hopefully balanced. This is certainly not a character assassination of my own father. <laughs> it's just a, here's a very complicated man. We're all very human. And and as he says himself in the final words of the, the film, the story of a very human being. Quite. Hmm. I, I, I just, just wanted to share a quick story just with you before I ask you that final question. And that is, I was uh, almost hit by a uh, an ambulance as a, as a kid. And um, this is a true story. And I woke up on the pavement I was on my way to school and um, I was rushed into an ambulance, taken to the hospital. And the only thing I remember is saying to my mother, can I have my Thunderbirds cards now, please? Oh, and uh, I did get them. So I, uh, I did get the Thunderbirds cards and I have Thunderbirds three sitting on my shelf above me. So amazing. Uh, it might be spies here on Spy Hearts, but uh, Jerry Anderson has a small part to play in this, too. Very glad to hear that. <laughs> 
Scott, now, can I just can I just say my little tribute to Jerry Anson? When I was at five years old, my first day of school, I came back. I have a twin brother, and we presented with a dinky Thunderbirds two toy, which I played ad nauseum. And years later, when I found myself walking around the corridors of Pinewood, working in a legal capacity, I met your dad a few times at meetings and with various other people, and was hugely inspired by him because his work, you know, structures our imaginations. I think, mm. especially. But schoolboys of a certain age in the UK, your father's work still influences us from Captain Scarlet to Joe 90 to Thunderbirds through to Space 1999 and mm -hmm. things before. And as you say, his work birthed a whole bunch of technicians in, in various capacities. So on behalf of us fans and your continuing work, Big Finish is a great company mm -hmm. and Doctor Who is a equally great British Bond franchise. So any contribution you've done is great. So I just wanted to shove my tuppence worth in there. Well, thank you. I, I wish I could come again now to uh, leave with so many lovely compliments. Thanks. Well, uh, don't worry. We've got two, two Thunderbirds films to look at. You might have to come and bring some insight <laughs> at some point along the way. Um, but OK, so two part question to, to lead us out. Firstly, Jamie Anderson, what are you working on at the moment and where can people find you online? <laughs> uh, well, interestingly, we are about to launch um, a spy-related manual, would you believe? That's, uh, and that is pure coincidence. Uh, the, the, the Joe 90 Technical Operations Manual. So basically the guide that will be handed over to Joe to say, here's everything you need to know about everything you're going to be doing now you're a nine-year-old spy. Um, so uh, that's that's uh, launches for pre-order on the 31st of March and is available kind of uh, June time, I think. It's the it's due to drop print-wise. Um, but it, I mean, if, basically, if people want to find us, jerryanderson.com, Jerry with a G, best place. There's the Jerry Anderson store. There's the Jerry Anderson podcast. There's our YouTube channel. There's loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff. And lots of it is completely free to access. And the whole point is people find one thing and then make the leap to the next and then they discover the secret service there's another spy one of uh, yeah. uh from mm -hmm. the anderson stable that's a bit unusual um so it's, it's really nice seeing people of all ages discovering shows for the first time because of this kind of interconnected anderson umbrella and uh the last question then leading us out and this has been asked from everyone we mentioned john glenn he's had this question mariam darbo oh. she's had this question aj chowdhury sitting next to me here has had this question mm-hmm Jamie Anderson, what is your favourite spy movie of all time? Oh, okay. I mean, uh, I think it's fair to actually say Goldeneye, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. And part of that will have been because in the wake of Goldeneye, it was the era of the N64 yes. and playing Goldeneye relentlessly mm -hmm. To the point where it's recently made a bit of a resurgence on on TikTok with you know teenagers playing this N sixty four game, yeah, and the, the yeah. music and the kind of rubbish visuals being so nostalgic for me. I think that just goes to show that Goldeneye has somehow kept a really solid place in my heart above all other spy movies. It's uh, it's the reason I watch Bond films. So. I think we have that in common. I didn't know You're I'd the be in generation. We are. We are. We're golden, certainly. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd be uh, in Sapatico with Jamie Anson today. So I'm I'm pleased with that. And Jamie, I'm I'm so pleased you were so open about the story. Um and was so lovely to speak to you. Thank you for the time. Uh, it's been absolutely FAB talking to you. <laughs> Oh, you ruined it there. I did. Huge <laughs> thank you, Jamie. You really pushed the needle forward on this Bond story and you really the historians and Bond scholars and film historians, you really, really 
we, we're really privileged to hear this from you. Pleasure. And thank There's you, more... Scott, for, for, for making this work. It's great journalism. And once again, from Spy Hoss Podcast. Well, thank you, Scott. And there's more to come. I'd love I'd love for more of the story to be told. So let's hope that information comes out eventually. And I will keep pestering very politely the Fleming estate until it does. Well, the worst case is always a part two of this podcast. So hey-ho. But Jamie, again, it's been wonderful. Thank you for the time. Thank you. There you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Jamie Anderson. I want to thank Jamie for taking the time to talk with us all about this wonderful script treatment that I want to get into in a minute. But I want to say thank you also to the team at uh, the Jerry Anderson podcast and Jamie's assistant, Ben Page, as well, who have all been crucial in putting this all together. Thank you all for your help. AJ, what what a find. Well, I'm blown away. Jamie was incredibly generous to share those details with us. Um, it's It would have been bond with no strings attached. And I think that uh, what he's given is really pushed the information forward. It's... Uh, We've known about it. It's been cited in various books, including our own, Some Kind of Era, the remarkable story of the James Bond films. But uh, Matthew Field and I never got this far, and Jamie's really um, really cleared up a lot of detail, the timing and the content of it, because what eventually ended up in The Spy Love Me is discussed was never quite clear how far it got. But in the week that we've celebrated 70 years of Ian Fleming's Casino Royal, the idea that this screenplay was based on the original novel Moonraker, the nineteen fifty five novel, is really cool. And I think that that's revelatory, I think, for, for a lot of us. I think it's rather serendipitous time to bring this interview out as well, because not only was it the seventieth anniversary of Casino Royale, the book coming out, but it was also Jerry Anderson's birthday last week as well. It it, it coincides beautifully, a celebration of both Fleming's work and Anderson's work here on Spy Hards. And I think one thing that's interesting to point out, as you mentioned, sort of, it's, it's been a gap, a, a gap in the research for Bond. And you would think that James Bond has been something that has been taken apart over the years and every little secret has been found. But it's it's great that, I don't know, since the, like, I don't know, 50 years since this was put together, we're still finding things out about what could have been and these mystery scripts that are out there. And I'm just so glad that we could find this and, and sort of bring it into the light, as it were. Bond is the gift that keeps giving. They've just uncovered a range of uh, screenplays that were bought and developed by the Rank Organization, one of which mm. would have been Moonraker in sure. about the late 50s. And this thing seems to, again, be, um, you know, something that we've all been sort of, we, it was treasure we didn't even know existed because until now we thought all copies of the screenplay were gone or been destroyed or missing. But the mm. fact that, um, that Jamie only discovered recently as well, that's another bonus. So, yeah, I think luck and charm have shone upon Spy Hearts podcast as always. Well, you know, you're you're a member of the family now, AJ. So you're you're part of the Spy Hearts. You're, you've been one of the hosts now. You're You're part of the team. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> i'm not sure i like that name but I, I well let's just you know i kind of want to let people just sort of take this in a little bit there's a lot to take in from what jamie told us but maybe let's talk about a couple of our highlights from the script treatment i mean for me one of the highlights is getting to see this infusion of jerry anderson's work he, he has that certain tone that jerry has with his science fiction work into the world of Bond. Now, Moonraker, the film that we eventually got in the late 70s, is definitely a work of science fiction. It's also a work of madness, many would say. <laughs> this this feels like it almost would have been far more 
believable in a way. Well, it's ironic. Moonraker had wonderful special effects and miniatures by Derek Meddings, who mm-hmm. was schooled and brought up in the Jerry Anderson uh, oeuvre. And I think this there's a kind of serendipity and a karmic symmetry that this is sort of where it began. What I find really exciting was how closely it cleaved to the novel. And mm. you've got this wonderful thing of the original novel set only in England. You've got Chases on the Dover Road. You've got Hugo Drax, this big red-haired sort of ogre. And all that seems to be retained. And yet then he goes crazily into space with that wonderful titanic imagery of an upturned super tanker that's going to launch the Moonraker rocket. And it goes even more bonkers than probably the 79 movie in terms of space and science fiction. Cubby Broccoli, remember, didn't call the 79 Moonraker science fiction. He called it science fact. Ha, ha, ha. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that it's it's a really interesting bit of sort of, you know, pulp fiction and, and Bond fiction and, and kind of very Jerry Anderson as well. Mm. And one thing I think you were quite keen to sort of hear about in, in the interview and it's as i always put my hands up saying i'm not a bond aficionado i know enough to get by but i've not read all the books i don't know enough about the background that's why one of the reasons why i called you to be here you you know it you've written about it you are what i would call a bond scholar uh i'm not sure you like that title and i don't like the title dad but hey ho, we're both here <laughs> we've both got <laughs> these titles but you know one thing you were quite interested about was the bond girls and specifically the bond girl in the fleming books has never been put on the big screen Gala Brand. Now she found her way into this treatment. Yeah, exactly. And Gala Brand, this was the third novel, and at the end, famously, Bond doesn't get with Gala Brand. In fact, she disappears, she's engaged to be married, and Bond turns away alone, the man who's only silhouette, an image that has cropped up in films. And Gala Brand is a character name that's cropped up in many subsequent screenplays, and I like the idea that she originates here in this sort of um this adaptation and again the period is interesting that's the post george lazenby sort of early 70s thing uh where was bond going this is very much a harry saltzman vehicle with that and harry saltzman was kind of famous in the partnership with cubby broccoli for having outrageous ideas and uh, i think someone said he had 10 ideas only two of them were usable and this certainly belongs to that school of thought well, I think that's a genuinely a sign of genius, really, when you've got all those sort of ideas bopping around your head. But as long as there's a filter and then you end up with the magic that we're still talking about now. I, I think it would have been nice to have seen this mysterious Bond girl that's never made it onto the big screen come to life in the film that she was supposed to be in. It's strange that we never ended up with Gala Brand in the Moonraker film. Yeah. And also, funnily enough, the Moon, the Drax character, Hugo Drax, has never been properly represented. In fact, the film Die Another Day, the kind of essence of who Drax was and cheating at Blades, was taken on by Toby Stevens' Gustav Graves, but it's not the quite, it's not the same thing. But yeah, no, the, the other thing, listening to it, I could just imagine it being designed and all the model work done by Derek Meddings yeah. and that Anderson team that made, uh, you know, miniatures and those effects go a long way. And I think they would have really brought something to it. Yeah, absolutely. I I know I could almost see Jerry Anderson designing that through sort of his lens of what he creates on his TV shows and knowing the capabilities of his staff with sort of the funding of the Bond films and what they could achieve. That super tanker turning up like the Titanic and launching a rocket into space sounds almost ludicrous. But if it's done well, 
you're going to buy it. And if you think of what like Derek Meddings achieved in the Moonraker film we actually ended up with, I could only wonder what sort of spectacle we would have got with that super tanker. Yeah, I mean, th- I think it would have been groundbreaking. I've always sort of slightly resented the fact that the Moonraker film is sort of seen as a Star Wars ripoff. I see it as they tried to be quite realistic and it's much more owes a lot more to the effects and realism of 2001, if that's not being too pretentious. I think no, no. had they done this, they would have treated it relatively seriously. You know, treated, uh, well, as seriously as you can have a super tanker that fires a rocket and... Uh, blast the moon into out of earth orbit you know as serious as you can take that um but no it's just really really exciting i i I thank you for involving this but the the archaeology we found the treasure we've unearthed in this treatment thanks to jamie and of course uh geranson and the co-writer tony barwick anthony bark Mm -hmm. a long time uh geranson scribe um is just absolutely fascinating no, I, I thank you for, for coming on, AJ. I, one thing that we try to do here on Spy Hearts is preserve stories, learn stories about the way films are made and put together. And I think it's really important to speak to people. And that's what we do here with our Spy Master interview series. We try and find these bits of you know, gems that haven't been found, archaeology almost, if you, you, I'll use your word. We are uh, film historians without an actual title or any qualifications whatsoever. Well, thanks to you and Cam, you keep the spy hearts end up, and uh, it's it really was fascinating. I hope your listeners really, really get what we got from. It. I think we were quite excited when we did it. That's the pleasure of doing it. So um, let's hope they yeah. enjoy it as well. I'm sure they will. I, I hope I hope everyone does, and and I'm glad Jamie got an opportunity as well to get that story out there because you know he mentioned how there'd been ideas about it being made into a comic book or. A, of animation and if this is the only way that this story is ever going to get told i'm glad firstly it was with us because hey what a scoop but also i'm glad jamie got to tell that story and share his dad's work with the world something that clearly jerry and tony bark both cared about doing because they spent so much time doing this exactly and i was just with corinne turner yesterday evening she's the head of the literary estate the fleming literary estate they were celebrating, you know, as I said, the 70 years of Ian Fleming's casino role. And I think it would have been fascinating for the Ian Fleming estate to see what would have come from the Moonraker novel, which hitherto remains completely more or less unfilmed. So, you know, large elements of that are still yet to make it. Mm, absolutely. Well, I think that that sort of wraps us up. There's many moments I'd like to sort of go through, talk about the, the sea dog dolphins that are dragging mines along the ocean or... Uh, Gromo, the henchman who fires ball bearings at people, or the inflatable chairs with poisonous gas. All these lovely things that feel very much like they're a late 60s, early 70s Bond style. That, uh, But that's all there now, and you can go back and listen to this whenever you'd like. AJ, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We briefly mentioned your book, but where can people find it online? Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, we're published by the History Press, Some Kind of Hero, and, um, you know, still are available and uh, watch this space we've got a matthew field and i've co-written uh, a sean connery special brochure for mi6 confidential head to that site mi6 hq and it's uh we've interviewed about 40 co-stars of sean connery and really had a re- revisitation to commemorate his time as james bond the J- sean connery a james bond journey is what it's called yeah we'll have links in the show notes below for all of that and you know I would always say go and grab a copy. I've got it on my shelf, the Some Kind of Hero book. And uh, I'll see if I can grab a copy of that Sean Connery book too. But AJ, again, thank you. You're a good egg. And uh, we're so glad you can come back on the show. Thank you very much. Au revoir. 
Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Jamie Anderson. Now, stay tuned this week, fans of the Russia House or fans of John Le Carre. We actually have an interview with the director of 1990s The Russia House, Mr. Fred Skepsi, on the show to talk all about working with Sean Connery, another Bond connection there, along with Michelle Pfeiffer, Ken Russell, all sorts of names in that film. A wonderful film. Uh, Check that out. And then next week on the show, we're changing up a little bit here. We're heading back to 1972 to take a look at Charles Bronson's The Mechanic. A bit of a different film. Spy adjacent, I would say. But there you go. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Mechanic next week and join us on the show. If you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHard. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, SpyHards are go. (laughs) 